All right, if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. The issue before us this morning is an important one. And that issue is this. Are you willing to believe what God has told you, uh, even when you have no other evidence except for his bare word? Are you willing to believe what God has said simply because he has said it? Even if you look around and sometimes things seem contrary to what he has said. I want to be clear. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not closing your eyes, hoping for the best, and then taking a step. That is not the way the Bible talks about faith. In the Bible, faith is a response to light. Faith is a response to revelation from God. God causes you to see something, and now in light of having seen, you act, you respond, you believe. We as Christians don't sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I was in darkness, but I took a leap of faith. I, I walked. No, it's, it's I once was blind, but now I see. Faith is a response to light. And so again, I, as we go through this passage and this message this morning, I want to be clear up front that I'm not calling us to a kind of faith that ignores evidence, that ignores reason or logic. But there are times when the promises and the truths that we have received from God seem contrary to what we initially and superficially see with our own physical eyes. There are times when the evidence of God's word stands in contrast to the immediate evidence of our circumstances. So, for example, God says, I'm working all for your good. And it really doesn't feel like it right now. You get up on Monday and you just have one of those Mondays. Everything, you, you had your, your day planned, it was going to happen like this, and you get to the end of the day and then you didn't even get to your list because things started going wrong from the beginning. And so you have two contrasting things before you. God's promise, I'm working all for your good, and how you feel the way the day seemed to go, are you willing to trust the bare word of God because it comes from God? So put yourself in Mary's sandals here. She's a teenage girl in a remote village in Galilee. She's betrothed to a local carpenter, a godly man, uh, she's waiting for the day of their marriage to come. And an angel comes to her and tells her that she's going to conceive as a virgin. And she's going to give birth to a son 
who, oh, by the way, is going to be and is the son of God and the future king of all mankind and the universe. The encounter with the angel Gabriel was sudden and it was surprising. It was unexpected. Mary's life was going one way and all of a sudden, with one surprise visit, her world has been turned upside down. All of her plans, her thoughts, her dreams, her expectations, they're all gone. Everything has changed with this announcement, this word from God. Mary, you're going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, and your son will be the promised Messiah. What would you do next? What would go through your mind as you tried to sleep that night after that meeting with Gabriel? Would you dare and try and tell somebody who would be crazy enough to believe you? Did Mary tell her parents? We don't know. If you go to someone and, and you tell them, oh yes, I'm going to have a child as a virgin and my child's going to be the ruler of the universe, wouldn't the expected reaction be that they're going to think you've lost your marbles? That there's something wrong with you? What would Joseph say about this? Uh, he and Mary are in this betrothal period, a period in which they're separated for a time before the wedding. Joseph is working on the home in which the two of them will live. Does Mary dare approach him with this news about this visit? Uh, moreover, Gabriel gave no proof to Mary of, of his words. There's no sign yet of anything he said. Mary doesn't feel pregnant yet. There's no bodily evidence that she's with child. Maybe she dreamed the whole thing. Maybe it was a hallucination. So what would you do if you were in her sandals? Mary does something we might not expect at first. She decides that now is the time to take a trip of over a hundred miles. She goes on a journey, and it's a long journey. Look at what happens, beginning in verse 39. This is the very word of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So first, notice Mary's trip. Why does Mary make this trip? And why does she make it with Haste, as we are told. Well, think about it. 
the angel Gabriel has also just told Mary that her cousin Elizabeth is also with child. And Elizabeth's child is also a miracle child, a child that has been conceived in her old age beyond Elizabeth's childbearing years. If anyone is going to believe Mary, if anyone is going to understand even a little bit of what is now happening in her life, it will be Elizabeth. Both Elizabeth and Mary have been brought into this great work that God is doing, and almost no one else knows about it. Almost no one else would believe it. Others would scoff. Others would shake their heads. But with Elizabeth, Mary could have real fellowship. They could rejoice together in each other's blessing. They could open up their hearts to one another about their fears and about their concerns. They could pray together. These two women have been brought into something special and it's now a bond that unites them. A bond even stronger than their family kinship that now brings them together. There are some conversations that only people of a select group can have together and really understand each other. I heard one pastor talking about how women who are pregnant or have been pregnant can talk together about shared experiences in a way that will forever be shut off to men. Men will never be able to engage in those conversations with any understanding. It's just a world that belongs to women. Maybe you have some unique job. Maybe you have some unique hobby, and you get excited whenever you meet someone who happens to share the same interest. Right? Oh, here, here's somebody I can talk to. Here's somebody who, who gets it. Here's somebody who understands. That kind of fellowship can be so rich and so rewarding and encouraging and, and fulfilling. Mount Herman, let me challenge us on this very point. Do you understand that if you are a Christian, you have been brought into something special? You have been brought into a select group of people with a special bond, with special and unique concerns. The rest of the world does not care about growing in spiritual knowledge and biblical truth. The rest of the world does not care about the kingdom that Christ is building. The rest of the world does not care about missions and people groups being reached for Christ. It's never on the evening news. It's never in the newspapers. It's never what they're talking about on NPR. The world doesn't care about that. But if you're a Christian, you have interests and priorities and concerns that the rest of the world doesn't understand or even care about. Maybe you're the only Christian in your workplace. And your coworkers, they can relate to you as you talk about sports. Your coworkers can relate to you as you talk about politics. Your coworkers can relate to you as you talk about your health difficulties or family tragedies or the latest happenings in our local area. But start talking to them about your struggle to understand some doctrine of the faith. 
Or start talking to them about your, your effort to root out certain sins in your life. Or your refusal to engage in certain forms of entertainment. Or your willingness to try and help get the cause of the gospel to the nations. And suddenly you're speaking a foreign language to them. And they're looking at their watches and they're finding an excuse to get out of the conversation. Because no longer is there a, a, a way of relating. In fact, as a Christian, if you start talking about certain subjects, they're likely to get offended. Because they don't understand. The, this, the unbeliever is on the outside. They don't know what it is to be within. They just can't relate. This is why Christians need each other. We get each other. God has created us to engage in edifying conversations that build one another up. And we can do that because we as Christians have special concerns, interests, priorities that come to us through our shared faith in Jesus Christ. What matters to Jesus now matters to us. The world doesn't care about it. But we in this room care about it. And Christians around the world care about it. Yes, have conversations with your co-workers and your neighbors. Have conversations with your unbelieving family members. Look for bridges. Look for common bonds. But understand that your life needs true fellowship. Conversations about spiritual matters that can really only happen with other believers. And if Mary was willing to travel over a hundred miles to be with her cousin, so that they could understand each other, get each other, and edify one another, should we not make spiritual conversations a priority for us as well? I almost planned to preach the entire sermon on that subject alone. I didn't do that. If I had done that, we would have focused on three points. They would have been first, the desire for spiritual conversations. Do you have a desire for spiritual conversations? Do you have a desire to talk about the important things that matter to you and your Savior with others who get it and have that same interest? Uh, my second point would have been about the priority of spiritual conversations. Do you say no to other things and other opportunities in your life in order to spend time with believers talking about things that matter? Do you know what it is to prioritize having these kinds of conversations, this kind of fellowship, and to set that above other things that may be good but aren't as important? And then we would have looked at the effects of spiritual conversation. How the book of Hebrews tells us that God uses those conversations to build up his people, even to keep his people saved. The conversations that Christians have with one another, whether it be in the local church, whether it be in a home, whether it be at Bojangles, whether it be on the phone, whether it be chatting you know, through Facebook Live or something, whatever the means, okay, God uses these spiritual conversations as a vital means of grace. An important way that God protects us from a hard heart. A vital way that God keeps us from getting a seared conscience. God does us good in these conversations and we should pursue them. 
And allow me to make one more observation along these lines. Notice that in our passage, you have two women at two very different seasons of their lives. Elizabeth is old. She is advanced in age. Mary is a young teenage girl, probably around 13 or 14 years old. And yet these two would benefit from one another. These two, through their special bond, would get each other and be able to care for one another. This needs to be a reminder to us that Christian fellowship should not be isolated into age groups. We need older Christians and younger Christians learning from one another. We need Titus 2 happening in our church and in our lives. Older women pouring wisdom into younger women. Older men pouring wisdom into younger men. Is that happening for you? Are you making that happen for you? Do you have a real, vibrant relationship with people in this church who are significantly older than you and significantly younger than you. It's one of the benefits of a small church. This is in some ways easier for us than in other larger churches. God has in some ways made it easier for you to have more interaction with Christians in our body who are significantly younger or older. Are you seizing those opportunities? Are you cultivating those relationships? I pray that God would cause that kind of fellowship to abound here at our church. So we see Mary's trip. But second, observe Elizabeth's prophetic greeting. Elizabeth's prophetic greeting. Verses 41 through 45 are really focused on giving us these words of Elizabeth. These are not just normal words. These are not words that are just a common greeting. We're told that the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth. Okay, so Mary has been on this long trip. She finally arrives in this little town in, in Judah. She walks into the door. Mary says, hello. And Elizabeth, you would normally expect to say, hey, Mary. And instead, we're told the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth and she exclaimed with a loud cry. This is something unusual happening here. This is, this is God working through Elizabeth prophetically to bless Mary because Mary has acted on her faith. Mary believed what God told her through Gabriel even when there was no evidence yet of any of it coming true. On the sheer word of this Angel, Gabriel, Mary has believed that she's going to give birth and that her cousin Elizabeth is already with child and is soon to give birth. And on the bare word of God, Mary took that to heart and she's made this trip of over 100 miles. And so this unusual, clearly prophetic greeting from Elizabeth is an act of God rewarding Mary's faith. It's a gift of assurance to Mary. Mary, you were right to believe me. Read again exactly what Elizabeth says to her. Beginning verse 41. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. If you were Mary, the first thing I think you would have experienced here was a bit of startled shock at this strange greeting. You know, here, here comes your cousin Elizabeth, and this, this is this extended, prophetic, loud, right, a loud cry greeting. So there's that. And then I think the second thing that would have crossed your mind is how did she know? How, how does she know that I'm pregnant? Because nobody knows. We've not yet been told that anybody knows except for Mary. When Gabriel came to Zechariah and told Zechariah about his own surprise son, we're not told that Gabriel said anything to Zechariah about Mary or about Nazareth. Zechariah and Elizabeth know that their son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. But they weren't told from whom the Messiah would come. So where does this special knowledge come from? How does Elizabeth, a hundred miles south of Mary, know what's going on in Mary's life? This has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. This has to be spirit-given knowledge, a spirit-given prophecy meant to say to Mary, it is true. What you've heard is true. See what God is doing here. Mary has come all this way by faith, believing what Gabriel told her, and the first thing that she hears from the lips of her cousin are these words, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. What comfort that must have been to Mary. How that must have brought to Mary some, some real strength in what had to have been a confusing time, an anxious time. Is it not wonderful how God can bring people into our lives at those very moments when we are most tempted to doubt or fear or anxiety? And how God can use those people to point us afresh to Christ, to point us afresh to God's promises, to bring God's word to bear on us. The Proverbs say, how sweet is a word in season. You experience the benefit of a word in season, a timely word, just what you needed to hear when you were beginning to lose heart or lose hope. Do you see that word blessed that keeps being repeated in this passage? Blessed, blessed. It's the word makaria. Everybody say makaria. It means happy. It means happy. But this is not fickle happiness. This is not superficial, superficial happiness that's, that's here for a moment and then it's gone the next, right? This isn't the kind of happiness that comes when you hear a funny joke and you laugh and you're happy for a moment and then you turn over here and suddenly the happiness is gone and you're frustrated or grumpy or sad or whatever may be going on over there, right? It's not that kind of happiness. Makaria refers to a deep-seated happiness, 
a happiness only given by God, a happiness that is planted deep in your soul. It's the kind of happiness a person can have when you are sure that God is with you, that God is for you, that God is working all for your good. It is a deep kind of happiness that sustains you even through tears and moments of pain or trial or tragedy. Makaria is the best kind of happiness in the world. To have this kind of happiness is to be truly favored by God. Because only God can give somebody this kind of deep happiness, this makaria. And you say, Justin, I want that happiness. <laughs> I, I want to know that kind of happiness. How can I have that kind of happiness? Well, hold on tight, because we're going to get there momentarily. But notice next the remarkable statement by Elizabeth in verse 43. You see it? Verse 43. Uh, two amazing realities here. First, that Elizabeth recognizes the unborn child of Mary as her Lord. And second, that Elizabeth senses her own unworthiness in light of all that God is doing. So remember what Gabriel had told Mary. Her son, her surprise, virgin-born son is going to be the king of the world. Mary, your son is going to be the one who will sit on David's throne. He's going to reign over God's people, and he's going to reign forever. Nobody would believe Mary if she told them this. But here is Mary's cousin Elizabeth greeting her as she walks in the door, and Elizabeth is confirming through the Holy Spirit exactly what Gabriel has said, that her child is going to be Lord Again, this is, this is the work of the Spirit making this happen. And notice the humility that we see in Elizabeth. Uh, she recognizes the honor and the privilege of being even in the room with Mary. And it's a privilege not because of who Mary is. It's a privilege because of the son whom Mary is carrying in her womb. And so Elizabeth feels this sense of what an amazing thing. That God would even let me be in the presence of the one who is carrying the Messiah. The one who is carrying the king of the world. Mary was not used to that kind of treatment. On her trip down, she almost certainly would have traveled in the safety of a group. One did not travel the roads of Israel alone. The danger from thieves and robbers was very evident um, the trip would have been all the more risky for a teenage girl, 12, 13, 14 years old. And so almost certainly for every leg of her journey, she would have been joining in with a group of a caravan or a group of travelers traveling the road that day, finding safety in that group. As Mary traveled down to Judah, none of those people thought it was a privilege to be in Mary's presence. None of those people treated her as if she was somebody important. She's just another girl. She's just another traveler, another person in the group. Nobody there had any idea who this child was inside of her. At this point, none of them would have had any idea that she was pregnant at all. And so after a long trip, 100 miles, people around her being treated as just a girl... Walks into Elizabeth's house. Hi, Elizabeth. And here comes this greeting. 
where Elizabeth says, I consider it an honor. What a thing that God would allow me to be greeted by you and to have you here in my house. We see the kindness and the tenderness of God towards young Mary as he works through Elizabeth to confirm his promises to her. Now, what do we do with this amazing testimony of Elizabeth that her own unborn son leapt in her womb when Mary's voice was heard? My own understanding, and it's debatable, my my own understanding is that we are in the fall of the year 5 B.C., And we do know, this is not debatable because we're told by Gabriel, that Elizabeth is at least six months pregnant by this time. So when Mary comes to Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth is now at least her sixth month of pregnancy. Uh, Scientists tell us that unborn babies begin hearing at 18 weeks, that by 24 weeks they have well-functioning ears. And so we could talk about what does it mean that, you know, the baby John heard the voice of Mary But again, ultimately, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moved the child. We've already been told that even in his mother's womb, John the Baptist is full of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is working in that unborn child. And so when Elizabeth hears the sound of Mary's voice, it is the Spirit that moves the unborn John to leap within her womb. It's yet another confirmation for both of these women the great promises made to them, that they truly are a part of this great work that God is doing. And these two sons really are who God has said they will be. The forerunner of the Messiah who is coming to prepare the way and the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just remember, what is the evidence they have of this? The bare word of God, that God said so. And one other evidence Zechariah still can't talk. Just don't forget that. Zechariah's in the house. He can't speak. And he won't speak until John is born. So that helped a little. We must notice how inconsistent the pro-abortion argument is with passages like this one. Uh, Anyone who treats an unborn child as just a fetus or as just a clump of tissue that can be disposed of or destroyed, isn't dealing honestly with passages of Scripture like this one. Already the Spirit of God is at work in these unborn children. Already they have dignity and value, not just because of the special roles that they're going to play in history, but because they are human beings made in the image of God. Absolutely, the child that Mary is carrying has unique dignity and unique value as the very son of God and the king of the universe. But every child is a king. Every child is one of those entrusted by God with the commission to have dominion over the earth. According to Genesis 1 and 2, the human race is a royal race. We are a race of kings and queens appointed by God to rule and reign and exercise dominion over the resources and the plants and the animals of this world. Human life is precious life. And any discussion of the abortion issue 
that focuses only on the mother and the mother's wishes and neglects the value and dignity of the unborn child is unscriptural and ungodly and unrighteous. But we're in the midst of an election, and I don't ever want this pulpit to become political, so we've said that much, and we will move on. Let me ask you another question. How do you respond when you think about the presence of Jesus Christ? John leapt in his mother's womb when he heard the voice of Mary, who was carrying the Lord Jesus. Elizabeth declared it a great privilege to be in the presence of the one carrying the Savior. What do you think about being in the presence of Christ? When it crosses your mind, I am in the presence of Jesus Christ, is there any leaping that happens to you? Is there any joyful humility that stirs up in your soul? So when you're going through your week, And you suddenly pause during your day and you realize that the very Son of God is with you. Indeed, by the Holy Spirit as a Christian, he now dwells inside of you. Does that cause you to well up with joy? Do you ever find yourself floored with gratitude that the Lord Jesus Christ would choose to come and dwell by his Spirit with you and in you and for you? How do you respond when you remember what the Bible says about our corporate gatherings here? Yes, Jesus lives within every believer through the person of the Holy Spirit, but he is with us in special presence. The Lord Jesus is with us in special power when we join together as a local church where two or more are gathered in his name. There he is with them, just as God used used to dwell in the special presence of the Holy of Holies in the temple, we're told that when we gather together, it's like living stones coming together, forming a temple in which Jesus comes and dwells in a powerful way. Mount Hermon, that's happening right now. According to the bare word of God, we have gathered in the name of Jesus and he is with us in unusual power and unusual presence at this very moment. He is here. Do you respond to that reality with a sense of leaping? Do you respond to that reality as Elizabeth did with a sense of humility? Why is it that I have been granted the privilege to even be here? To be a part of this place where Christ is here in special presence. People say all the time, you know, I understand why some Christians go to church, but, you know, out on the river in my boat, that's my church. Jesus never promised to be in special presence there. Up in my deer stand, me and my Bible, that's my church. Jesus never promised to be in special presence there. It's only here in the gatherings of his people. It's one of the most amazing privileges in the world. Let us never take it for granted. Let there be a sense of leaping for us. And then, dear Christian, when you think about what's ahead for you, the way you're going to experience the presence of Christ in the future, does that cause you to sense a bit of leaping in your soul? Does that not make you want to just dance? 
For one day, dear Christian, you are going to get to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in a way that you've never experienced it before. The beatific vision. You're going to gaze upon the glorified person of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for you and rose for you and intercedes for you and loves you more than your mama. And he knows you and you're going to relate to him and you're going to be loved by him. When you think about being in the presence of that Savior on that day, do you not long for it? Do you not pray for it? And should there not be a sense of leaping in us? Finally, let's observe from this passage, verse 45, Mary's faith. Mary's faith. We talked earlier about this word blessed, about this word makaria, how we should all want this favor from God, this deep-seated happiness that will not go away. Well, here we do see how we can have that kind of happiness. What is the way to have Makaria? What is the way to that kind of happiness? It is faith, believing the word of God because it is the word of God. What other evidence do we need if God has spoken something? Verse 45, this is prophetic, this is Elizabeth, this is part of her greeting to Mary as she walks in the door. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Do you want to be Makaria happy? Believe what the Lord has spoken to you. Okay, Justin, what's he spoken to me? Well, just open up your Bible and read. Just open it up and start believing. God tells you that he is good and holy and righteous. He is the great I am, the creator and the sustainer of all things, the one from whom and through whom and for whom all things exist. God is the all-wise God, the all-powerful God, and yet he is merciful and gracious, and yet he is the judge before whom one day we will all give an account. Do you want to be happy with Makaria happiness? Do you believe what God has told you about himself? Do you believe what he said to you about who he is? The Bible teaches that we are made in God's image, that we have inherent dignity and worth that no one can take away from you. And yet the Bible also says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that you were born into a rebellious race, a race that has tried to turn against God, to overthrow God, to rule our own lives, our own way. And dear friend, let me just tell you, you will never be truly happy, nor can you be truly happy until you are ready and willing to acknowledge your own sins and your own guilt before a holy God and the fact that he would be absolutely just and right to punish you forever. You cannot have the happiness that comes from believing the good news of the gospel until you have believed the bad news of who you are and your sins before God. Until you have owned up to your sin, Jesus will never be precious to you. The cross will never be precious to you. The promises of God will be meaningless to you. Until you believe what God has told you about you. 
And so I ask it again. Do you want to be Makaria? Do you want to be happy? Do you believe what the Lord has spoken to you about you? And then, dear friend, we also have what God has said to you about the way of salvation. And I can't do any science experiments to prove this. And the study of history can be helpful, but the study of history can't confirm this. At the end of the day, you have to believe what I'm about to tell you on the bare fact that it is the word of God. That has to be your basis. God said it, therefore I believe it. And what has he said to you? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not you may be saved. You might be saved. It, it, you will begin the process of possible. No, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Why did Jesus come in the world? To save sinners. He came to accomplish righteousness on behalf of us who are unrighteous. He came to live a perfect, obedient life, a life free of sin. And he did this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And throughout his 30-something years of life, he wove together a fabric of righteousness. And through that fabric of righteousness, when we believe on him, it is placed on us. So that when God the Father looks on us to believe, he sees us covered in the very righteousness of Christ. We broke the covenant. Jesus came and kept the covenant for us. We broke what God required of us. Jesus came and kept what God required of us for us. And then he took the guilt of every sin we've ever committed. He took the guilt that we deserve for every sin, past, present, and future, if we believe. And on the cross, he bore it fully and fully away. So that our sins, if you believe, are as far away from you as the east is from the west. And on the last day, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will find that they make it safely through the day of judgment into paradise itself. I simply ask you, that's what God has spoken to you. Do you believe it? Blessed is the one who believes these promises. Blessed is the one who believes God will fulfill all that he has spoken. Makaria, do you want it? Here's how you get it. You believe. I don't know what you were thinking when you came into this room this morning. Maybe you were thinking, if I could just get that promotion, then I'd really be happy. If I could just get this debt off of my back, if I could just get that girl to pay attention to me. If I could just find a way to make up for the way I wronged that person. If I could just get the house organized. If I could just make that one big deal. Or as many people were thinking last week, if I could just have those lottery numbers. <laughs> None of those things make for true happiness. None of them. There is only one way to the blessedness that is talked about in this passage. Like Mary, you simply must believe what God has spoken to you. So do you? Do you believe? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.